Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The reason why cannabis clubs are legal in Spain is because the Spanish believe that individuals have a right to privacy. And that is the whole basis of it. And, you know, that, that human right law applies to this country as much as it does to Spain. Thanks for joining us on Stop and Search. We're talking about UK cannabis social clubs. Are they an alternative model to reform? This one we've recorded live in an actual London cannabis club. Yep, they exist. They're out there. And we're going for it. So here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true love seldom Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we did this one live at an actual London Cannabis Club. It was just an amazing building. It was just so, so cool. And we're joined by Arthur Jones, who is the North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner, PCC. He has been very outspoken on the need for drug law reform. So thank you so much, Arthur. We're also joined by Greg De Hoyt, who is a friend of mine. I've known him since 2010. We started out together in the, in the process of drug law reform. He is now the chair of the UK Cannabis Social Club movement. Such a fascinating subject. I'll let Greg do all the talking on that because Greg can talk. And we're also joined by Melissa Bone, doctor, and she is from the University of Leicester, a lecturer, academic, very, very up on human rights. And that's an area we don't particularly address on this. So it's good to get that perspective. Thank you so much, Melissa. As I said, this is live. It's in a cannabis club. There's a lot of ambient noise. You'll hear doorbells. You'll hear bong hits. You'll hear people taking dabs and coughing afterwards and all sorts. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But the subject matter, honestly, it could not be more fascinating. As you know, London cannabis clubs do exist, as they do across the country. So what's going on? How can we get that forward? What can we do more to stimulate that? Are we getting there? So this is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Piece Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Let's get straight into this. I'm going to introduce the panel. So we've got Greg, who is the chair of the UKCSC. We've got Arthur Jones, who is the PCC of North Wales. And we've got Melissa Bone, who is Dr. Bone, who I got told not to call her Dr. Bone earlier. <laughs> you can if you want. It's a bit like a, a 90s song, actually, doesn't it, Dr. Bone? Or a villain. Yeah, it's true, a Bond villain, yeah. So if I could get you to do your own introductions for the podcast, starting with Melissa. Yeah, OK, so I'm an academic. Uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Leicester. Um, and I research drug policy issues from a human rights-based perspective. And Arfon? Yeah, um, my name is Arfon Jones. I'm a former police officer, 30 years, 
and I'm now an elected police and crime commissioner for North Wales. Um, so I've seen basically what a waste of time and money um, enforcing minor possession drugs uses. Um, got elected um, police and crime commissioner two and a half years ago. Uh, went on the record and said that um, all drugs should be regulated. You know, it's you know, um, and um, I, I believe in separating out um, use of drugs and misuse of drugs. And we all know that the vast majority of people who use drugs do it without any problem at all. Um, and I think to, to use the police and the criminal justice system to, to deal with people like that is totally wrong and unjustified. I think a round of applause for Arthur on that, I think. And then Greg. Hi, I'm Greg DeHoot. I'm the chairman of the UK Cannabis Social Clubs. I kind of started the movement out of a forced necessity, really. I've got Crohn's disease. I got told I had about between two and five years left to live in 2010. It's 2018, so screw you, prognosis. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I realised in about 2010, when I got out of the hospital, that there's going to be uh, a point where, like, I, I don't want to stay in my in my bedroom and like and have to like medicate there where it's socially acceptable to me but no one else um, I needed to be able to, to go around the country and find the best quality cannabis and uh, the nicest people and the good space to be able to use it in like any in any city or any town because that's the you know my right and my freedom to be able to travel so I set up the UK Cannabis Social Clubs uh, try to find as many people that had the same kind of passion and desire and mission as me and I'm glad to see that there's a dozen or so of you in the room today so thanks very much for coming and showing some support and we're in one of those places. Can we have a round of applause for all of that? I think I'm going to start with you, Greg, because in 2010, as you mentioned, we, we kind of started together in a, in a weird paths. kind of way, didn't we? Yeah. We, we were both quite ill, and we, we found each other over the internet, and then we took very different paths, didn't we? There's doorbell already, so if there's a lot of ambient noise on this podcast, I apologise in advance. This is, again, completely on the fly. So we, we started Scenic. off together. Yeah, seen it. That's why I'm opening it. Um, what was the route you took? Because you got into the UK CSC pretty early on, didn't you? Can you explain what that is and how you got into it? So another podcast shout out, Radical Russ Belleville over Legend. in the United States. He ran the Daily Audio Stash. It was a podcast that uh, he ran for, for Normal, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. They're a 40-year-old organization. Well, they were 40 in 2011. And uh, they ha they, he, he did a podcast every single day. And during my university years, I, um, I, I stumbled across the truth about cannabis. Um, and uh, I, just, I just had a year off using it. I'd been using cannabis since I was 16, 17, you know, as a, as a student, as an artist, as a, as a band you know, member, not really thinking, oh, this is this is subsiding the symptoms of the undiagnosed Crohn's disease, you know, that I, that I have. I've got all these symptoms. I go to the toilet a lot. My stomach really hurts. I'm in chronic pain. I, I'm bleeding. I'm throwing up. Um, and then, all, you know, that's from age 14 to sort of 16. And then I started smoking cannabis sort of like with my friends. My cousin came over from New Zealand and he was like, oh, you know, he's a musician. He's like, so uh, do you use anything for inspiration? I was like, oh, I wondered when you were going to ask me that, you know. <laughs> been speaking to him for 15 years you know or 10 years over the internet and uh it's like the musician's code and yeah I, I knew he was he a stoner to. he listened to the chili peppers like <laughs> <laughs> and uh 
so uh so he introduced me to cannabis and sort of like i liked it and uh you know i'd always been really against it at like all the way through school all my friends that had tried it i was like you're gonna get psychosis you're you'll end up addicted to heroin because that's what i was told like and i believed it and i was like shit i don't want to lose my friends and i was like passionate about saving them and it was all bullshit and uh i i realized that and sort of like it you know it it sort of like it suited me quite well it sort of like made me feel like i could think sort of like normally um i didn't even notice the fact that it's my symptoms got re re relieved really and um it wasn't until I stopped smoking that at university when I moved in with my partner. Um, she said, sort of, let's grow up, let's stop using cannabis. And we're like, oh yeah, all right, that's a sensible thing to do, you know. And I got really, really, really ill. Um, I was on the toilet every day. I wasn't, I was missing all my lectures. I was, um, I was a mess. I was, I was absolutely, you know, didn't know what was, what was happening. I really did think I was going to die. And then eventually, they, you know, they, they told me I was going to die. And uh, I started using cannabis again. And um, it, uh, it, you know, I, I, I kind of started using cannabis again after a bike accident, and it was a, it was a, it was kind of a moment of like, well, fuck this. I've tried everything else. Like my life is just bad. Whatever I do, I've tried to do things the good way, like, and now I'm having like, a, you know, vehicle accidents. And uh, I just said, fuck it. I'm going to start smoking weed again. I literally took off my helmet and said that to myself. And uh, I called up my friend like uh, when I got home. Um, said can you you know can you find some weed like i want to i need to smoke something again he found something within a day and that was it like i asked if i could keep the rest and like because I, I noticed it was helping me um it's i came off my antidepressants i um i realized i wasn't going to the toilet as much i had a better appetite i was happier and um i just got like a little bit outraged and a bit sort of like well, you know wh what's going on here like why is this working so well and i looked it up on the internet and uh Lo and behold, loads of people used cannabis as a form of medication for Crohn's disease and hundreds of illnesses. And I got really, really angry at that point. I'd been on chemotherapy drugs, I was on opiates, I was on steroids. <clears throat> These were all keeping me in bed, I was on antidepressants. You know, I was not thinking straight. I wasn't my former self or this, you know, creative person that you know, did all these, you know, things that I do now. Like, I'd you know just become a bit of a mess and like I was at university studying film like because I was a creative person I wanted to go and like turn these ideas into stories and to you know attach them, you know give them to audiences to, to look at make them worth something and uh, it just feel like all that medication just robbed that from me and um, when cannabis I you know came back into my life I, I was like you know do you know what like this is really doing something good for me um, unfortunately, the black market wasn't providing a good enough access to medical cannabis for me, or you know, cannabis that was medical. So I, um, I got really ill again, <laughs> and um, that's you know, that's when that's when they told me I was going to die. It's a little bit of to and fro on the timeline here. But I'll, I, uh, I'll come back to you on the UK CSE moment uh, in a moment. But I want to speak to Melissa because what Greg's saying there is you know. A perfect testimony of someone's route into drug law reform and this is kind of what you do isn't it is that the voice of the consumer those that have been at the other end of drug policy um, there's a human rights issue there and we don't always address that do we we don't always get to the nub of what drug policy is which is fundamentally policy against people's actions can you explain a little bit on that and your work yeah definitely so uh, i think the people 
you kind of hit the nail on the head there. When it comes to uh, making policy, the people who tend to make drug policy in this country uh, tend to be uh, medical health professionals. It tends to be um, law authorities, the Home Office, civil servants. Um, and I think if you have those bodies at the centre of drug policy making, then there's very much an element of a social control agenda in terms of controlling people's actions in relation to substances and getting access to them. Whereas if you allow for the voice of the consumer to come in um, and you look at the human rights of the consumer, then human rights interests can play a part as well and autonomy interests can actually um, play a part and they can be taken into account when you are trying to influence policy and create policy. So I think it is important to listen to the voice of the consumer and to have that come in. And this is going to be anybody that follows drug policy. This, they may have had a Twitter interaction with a certain person that makes this point, and I think you might be able to explain this point. But there is not such a thing as illegal drugs per se, is there? There's. Can you no, explain so on that? I mean, substances themselves, drugs themselves, aren't illegal. Like you can't criminalise an inanimate object. That that's impossible. So it's our actions in relation to uh, substances and how we consume them, how we possess them etc it's our actions in relation to drugs that are actually illegal and that's key in half one i think this is where you're great to come in on this is that for somebody that's completely senior within the police you can't really get much more senior than the pcc level that's fundamentally what the drug laws are trying to do isn't it is police people's actions is it any wonder that certain people are having a bit of a backlash to this that we there's a big movement putting hands up saying, actually, we're not okay with that. We might actually want to do something. Well, yeah, because the, the, the drug laws in this country are basically, you know, we're doing what American tells us to do. Uh, and basically, Henry Anslinger, as Johan Harry says in his book, um, it was basically a system of social control against minorities in, in America. And it's been adopted here. Um, my, my view is on the use of criminal justice... Why, why are we criminalising people that cause no harm to, to others, yeah? We're all here tonight, we're all enjoying ourselves, yeah? We're not causing any harm. We're not going to go out of here and smash any windows like certain people in pubs will do tonight. Um, I, 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 um, you know, if the government looked at the harm levels between alcohol and cannabis, yeah, then it should be turned the other way around, to be honest, and there should be more... Um, regulation and I, I came out uh, not so long ago saying that um, you know cannabis should be sold in off licenses you know under license age, age restrictions exactly the same as alcohol is and um, I reckon we, we'd, we'd have a, a far better and a far safer society if that was the case I'm going I'm to get a oh, round of applause for already <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you've earned that half one I think there's a lot of a round of applause that you've have earned for this subject because you've really embraced it. You've been one of the, of the PCCs that have taken drug law reform as an issue that you want to address. And specifically, how does, interrupted by the percolation downstairs, but how does the UK CSE model fit with you and your way of thinking reform should go? Well, going back to what uh, Melissa says now about um, the human rights aspect, the reason why cannabis clubs are legal in Spain is because the Spanish believe that individuals have a right to privacy and that is the whole basis of it and you know that that human right law applies to this country as much as it does to Spain so if the Spanish believe that you can use that consenting adults can, can, can use cannabis in private then I, I don't see what the argument is against this country um, saying no you can't do it 
although the Spanish, um, the constitutional court in Spain last year did close that down, so they now have ruled last year that cannabis social clubs are criminalised now in Spain. Yeah, I think in large part because the clubs started operating as huge organisations and as for-profit organisations, so there was quite a lot of criminal activity going on as well. So, you know, the clubs actually initially started out as small not-for-profit initiatives, and it started out by activists trying to exploit legal loopholes in the Spanish law, because it is slightly different, the Spanish law to um, our law, in that personal consumption was never actually criminalised, and social supply wasn't criminalised either in Spain. Like, there's been a legal doctrine for years coming through the courts, which didn't do that. So what activists did in Spain was like, hang on a second, we're going to see if we can exploit this law and politically make the point that we should have rights to privacy, rights to our own autonomy, to form the clubs and share and consume uh, cannabis. So it it is similar, but, you know, we do still have the same privacy rights, but courts in our country don't pay as much attention to them. Yeah. I think there is actually like a, there is a difference when you go into these clubs, there is a difference when you go into these clubs in Spain, uh, in like Barcelona, for example, where like the model, it's called the Catalonia model because that's really where it started. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's some that have still got that real small family feeling vibe. You go in there and everyone knows absolutely every, every other member, um, the bud that they grow, they choose what strains they're going to grow. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's part of that community feeling. Uh, they've probably got about 500 members max, you know, 300 to 500 members. Whereas there are some more commercial clubs that are that are, you know, based on the fact that they grow cannabis for the the people that are signing up to come to the club. They won't know everyone on a name by name basis or what they're doing in their personal life and things like that. And you you really you you feel the difference in those kind of clubs there. And while there is a need for both of those, I think it's really interesting that you know that social communal sort of like cannabis social club was accepted in you know in spain and now that it kind of evolved into this you know slightly semi-commercial you know i won't say monster but it's you know it's got very big there's over a thousand cannabis social clubs there and people are setting them up as a for-profit you know basis now that's when they've started to clamp down on it so it's something to sort of like consider when we're you know we're moving forward in this in the uk don't forget if we can try and project as much as we can because poor old amy Amy can't hear a thing over there. I'll send you the link when it broadcasts. <laughs> and next, if we do it again here next time, because it might, we might do it here again, we'll try and bring like some portable PA or something. Like, I blame Nikki. Nikki didn't bring anything. Like, he just brought her like a recorder and a laptop. I'm good. Yeah, it's yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to borrow Nikki's headphones, <laughs> jump on him. <laughs> But on that, on that, just kind of going back again, segueing, on that point about the... the I don't want to use the word rampant commercialisation, but we're certainly seeing that in some areas, aren't we, that there is a lot of commercialisation which could potentially do us some damage here. How, how do we go about that? Is it for our reform in the UK, speaking about the UK specifically, do we need to be a little bit more discreet? I think cannabis social clubs perhaps need to be quite clear about the goals if they are wanting to operate as a cannabis social club the way it was traditionally envisaged. So if you do want to operate as a cannabis social club as it was traditionally envisaged in Spain, for instance, then you ought to have like a not-for-profit ethos. Uh, you ought to be promoting public health-orientated goals, human rights-orientated goals. Um, and that way, perhaps, you would um, 
I don't know, legitimise the model to a certain extent a bit more. You might be able to get um, governments behind it a little bit more. Um, otherwise, I think the model might morph into something else if commercial interests come into it. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing because I think it's inevitable that people are going to want to make a profit uh, from things. But I think that's where like licensed um, retail outlets come into play and that's perhaps where licensed venues come into play. So the model will perhaps morph into something different. Uh, this is definitely the first podcast we've done with ambient noise as someone coughing their guts up from <laughs> what I imagine is a dab. <laughs> Certainly an original for us. But Greg, on that point, I think you're a good one to explain. The UK... Jeez, that's a bad one. We need to get him on. We need to get him on here. Let's check he's all right. It was a doctor. What strain did you just use? <laughs> Greg, if you can get over that. What, how does that fit with you? Like you're the chairman of the UK CSC. <laughs> What do you think? How, 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 how are we going with reform? Um, at the moment, like for the last seven years, we are like seven years into the Cannabis Social Club experiment now. Like we've, um, you know, we started off very grassroots, you know, just people coming together, like if they're bringing their own cannabis to little meetups, you know, they didn't, some of them don't even know where their cannabis came from. So we started educating them, like grow your own, sort of like you know what's in your, in your cannabis. If you can't grow your own, find someone in your cannabis social club this is the purpose of bringing you all together um like to to grow it for you like share the cost of growing so like that's basically the like the where the spanish model like started out and we wanted to try and you know emulate that but find a way that it fits in with the uk so obviously we set up the tag plant model we advise people like on a certain number of plants if they're grown individually uh, another number of plants if they're growing collectively so nine if you were growing personally up to 24 if you're growing as a as a small collective to share the share the crop and share the cost because obviously it's easier to to do that rather than having lots of small little grows in, in everywhere some patients can't grow for themselves so it's it's good that there's a you know healthy members of the club shall we say that have got an able body where they can you know go and lug a, a load of soil up into their loft and grow it for a, a bunch of patients um with that in mind, there is a very limited number of people that are willing to take that risk uh, for free and not add something onto the cost of cannabis for it. And, you know, there's plenty of people that want to become members of clubs, but there's not as many people that want to become free caregivers for clubs. And, like, while people like helping patients at the same time, there's some people that are really good at growing cannabis. They've been making money out of it before the clubs even existed. They're not going to turn around and suddenly go, well, there's no, non-profit models come out now. I'm going to stop making money off of it and paying my mortgage to support these, these, these clubs who have, you know, a very short, you know, you know uh, high risk of being busted. You know, like the, you know, that comes into play. So some people are coming along and going, right, well, I can I can offer a space and I can rent it out to a club and that's a, you know that's a you know uh, a way that the model is evolving but it's also helping clubs actually get on their feet and use a space because there's somewhere that someone is allowing them to to rent to do their club nights every week or every month or even every day like we've got some clubs that have a venue that is open seven days a week uh, on high street and we've got other clubs that are open four days a week on an industrial estate other clubs that are open one day a week in a back room in a pub somewhere um, and then other clubs that open you know once a month uh, you know all the members get together in a community center 
there's lots of different versions of it and like this one this is open you know six days of the week members can come in between certain hours and uh, it can also be hired out as an event space if you want to do product launches or private parties for your seed company or whatever bring like your that. own pa yeah yeah bring your own pa <laughs> event you know and uh, but um you know uh, you know the the business side is inevitably going to come in it's just about sort of like finding that middle ground like where is it ethical sort of like no one no one should be making sort of like millions out of cannabis out of, you know out of stoners while it's illegal like that is what the government are against that's what the police are against i think that's as stoners we're you know kind of against we we want you we want to see you know if people are making money out of cannabis can you put something into legalization can you put something into helping the social situation for stoners or patients and uh, I think while people are making money out of it, I think there is a good philanthropy in the cannabis community. People do put a little bit of like money aside or money into products to help patients and things like that. So like I, you know, it's a it's a double-edged sword. Like the, the profit side is what puts the government off of it, but at the same time, look at Colorado. Very true. How does that fit? How does that fit with you, Arfon? Because as someone in the police, it's going to be quite tricky to get drug law reform through on a on a political basis it's very much it's it's been put in a political football basically being battered from one court to the other it shouldn't be really you know if um if policy wasn't made in four year cycles and it was all based on populism you know if we got away from this populism of four year cycles and actually did what was right rather than you know what got you re-elected you know i think think that that would be a start for making some evidence-based um you know policy and um, that, that is where it's wrong. I'm, I'm very impressed with what was coming out of Colorado, except for the sort of um, the corporacy around it and, and the, the manufacture of, of cannabis in Colorado, which is obviously becoming very big business, um, as it is in, in other states that are legalized. In, um, the, the problem I have is, um, you know, people think I can authorize a cannabis club, say, to open in North Wales. There's a difference in my role and that of the Chief Constable. I can't tell a police officer in North Wales, if you come across anybody who's growing cannabis, you're not to arrest them. All, all, all we can do is uh, put a policy in place that if somebody is unfortunate enough to be, to be um, uh, detained, or, or is, is to make sure that we have a diversionary scheme in place, similar to what they have in Bristol. Um, if you're found in possession of a small amount of any drug in, in Bristol, um, there's a policy that they'll be diverted through an education scheme. So that there's no arrest, there's no DNA, there's no fingerprints, there's no photograph. You go on, it's, it's basically a speed awareness course, it's a drug awareness course for three hours, and that's the end of the story. Um, and I think in the current climate, without any um, regulation, that's about as good as he's going to get at the moment. Uh, but I'm sorry to say that. But, um, and that is, we don't need to change the legislation for decriminalisation. You know, um, even, even Sajid Javis says himself that he wants the police to use more out-of-court disposal and diversion for minor offences. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, right, we decriminalise. You'll never hear the, the Home Office use the word um, decriminalisation, but by talking about out-of-court disposals and diversion, that's exactly what they're saying. We're looking at different ways of dealing with the problem rather than criminalising people. We have had several examples of this recently, uh, you know, uh, fed back to us by members of the UK CSE and people that are following us. Uh, Sussex, 66 plants, they were busted, 
Uh, they uh, sent them a letter, asked them to come down the police station rather than raiding them and embarrassing them and humiliating them in front of the, their, their neighbours and the family, um, to which they actually accepted the invitation, went down there. Uh, they told them what they were going to be charged with, like they'd you know, ad admit if they were growing it because they'd you know, been found. Like the, I think the police had gained entry to the uh, premises you know, anyway, hadn't made a mess of the door, sent them a letter or left a letter there, um, he signed a piece of paper to say, yeah, this is what I've done, this is the punishment that I agree to, and he left there, and that was it. No court, no wasting up the time, no, no, you know, the court time. I've recently been to court with another, you know, another member of the clubs who's here tonight, and um, you know, it's just a stupid process that they have to go through. It's like they, you know, to try and humiliate the, you know, someone for growing some plants for, you know, in, you know, in most people's cases, for, you know, for medical use. It's kind of, you know, really ridiculous, embarrassing. Melissa, you, you made this point on a, on a video for Breaking Convention, which I watched last night, of in South Africa, there was examples of how human rights have really factored into this to get reform going. Do you mm. reckon we can employ those arguments here? Oof. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I think, I think we should be able to employ those arguments, but I think the judges in this country tend to shy away from politically sensitive areas, and drug policy, we all know, is one of the most politically sensitive areas that there is. So when cases come through the courts, and particularly when they get to the Court of Appeal, so the lower courts have to follow the precedents that are set in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, um, we don't, judges in this country, Court of Appeal judges, they haven't really respected the health rights of medical cannabis consumers. What they say is when the drug laws tend to conflict with the human rights of consumers, that it's up to Parliament to legislate and it's up to the government. So they just defer those issues straight to Parliament and the government. So it's quite different to what South Africa have done and even what Mexico have done a few years ago as well. They've accepted that you have a human right to consume cannabis on autonomy grounds, so on privacy grounds. Um, and the Mexican judgment, if you look at it, it's really interesting because they actually advocate human rights uh, to use cannabis on the basis of you should have the right to self-create, you should have the right to the free development of your personality, you should have the right to self-ownership. All these interesting human rights grounds are being put forward and are being successful in other countries around the world. Um, but I do think we're a bit more of a conservative country and it doesn't really tend to happen as much over here. Yeah. Would you agree that often as someone in charge is setting targets for what the police do? Do you think that we're getting any traction whatsoever within the general public that actually we might not want to be arresting people that consume drugs? Um, I think that there, there is massive public support. It's changed completely from when, when I sort of became enlightened, which is, what, 15 years ago. Uh, you may recall my chief constable at the time was a guy called Richard Bunstam who, who came out and said that all drugs should be regulated and as you can imagine, you know, everybody thought the world was going to cave in. Um, as, as it turned out, the guy was spot on and I'm still campaigning um, and um, he's, he's back in the country now and he's, he's very, very pleased that we're carrying on with, with that mantle. Um, as far as, um, as policing is concerned, I can safely put hand on heart as far as my own forces. If we do detain anybody with cannabis, it's, it's as a result of information that somebody's provided and that the police have felt they, they need to act. Yeah? I don't think it's on any, any, any self-initiative. Um, I don't think police officers go out to, to look for anybody in possession of, 
of mine and the Turks, and when they do find them, you know, they should have the option of dealing with differently than what they're doing at the moment. Because a caution, a cannabis caution, is still a record. Still fingerprints, photograph and DNA. And um, for, for an offence that causes no harm to, to anybody, um, being used by consenting adults, um, I, 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 you know, I think that's absurd. You know, why should somebody's future uh, career prospects be blighted by a conviction for or caution for possession of cannabis? Uh, and, that, and to be honest, I, I think we should be going further and, and we should look at um, scrapping the, um, the people who have got one-off convictions for cannabis um, should be removed from for any criminal record. Um, because, you know, that, that is what we're doing. You know, we, we, we're preventing people um, having a career as a consequence of, of doing something that, that causes no harm to others. And we should cease to do that. That's interesting because there's a lot of movement in Boston and Colorado about retrospectively wiping criminal convictions. Do you reckon we can have that conversation here? Do you think at some point there is going to be a, a position where we have got reform and then we retrospectively realise we didn't get that right? Um, I, th I, th I think it's a conversation uh, we need to have. I don't think we need uh, legislation to determine how long we need to keep criminal convictions for. Um, I think it's, it's a matter of uh, the police service coming together uh, and looking at what the policy is now, because obviously there's Rehabilitation of the Offenders Act. Um, there's all sorts of legislation around um, retention of personal information. Uh, I think it's an area, the conversation we should have, and, it, and it's an area that, that we should to, to look to improve, really. Um, I don't know if you've got a view on that, Melissa, how, how we can go about it. Or no, I just sort of agree with you, really. I do think it is a conversation that we ought to have. I think it would be very hypocritical of the government to legalise and regulate cannabis tomorrow and still have people in prison for cannabis-related offences. You know, the, the, yeah, the, the it, sort that out. People, yeah. People's records have got to be expunged, you know. Mm. Like, if it, it's got to be done at a step-by-step, -step, you know, pace, it's got to be done, but people should not have to sort of, like... Once cannabis is legal, once people like think of the people who've got a, a real medical right to use cannabis, even with all the funny restrictions that the government have made, that have been given a criminal record for using like cannabis, being caught with a small piece of hash because they're an MS patient, sort of like they've got a criminal record for it. Like they take that and they that really hurts them, that affects their life. Sort of like that needs to be taken away so they can actually feel like a an equal citizen again. Because I, I don't think it's really sort of like I don't think people who who don't use drugs realize sort of like the the impact of stigmatization like it affects your life it affects your sort of like your mental well-being and how you think people think about you even if they don't know that you use drugs and that barrier needs to be broken down i think like cannabis is a really good like easy you know an easier one to approach with people but i think it's the same you know across all the drug policy really sort of like that stigma you know stigmatization of drugs especially when you use it as a medicine that's what really got me outraged it's like this is my medicine sort of like and like winding forward now that medical cannabis like is potentially ish going to be available if you're specialist will give you an appointment it's and you can agenda. write and can write you an appointment like and give you the prescription where are you going to be able to consume that? 
Are you going to be able to go, oh, shit, I'm in the cinema watching Star Wars 5 um, or whatever it is. Like, I'm sure that one's already come out, isn't it? 50, yeah. Star Wars 55. Jason's, you're the expert. Yeah, don't get me on Star Wars because uh, uh, we, we will go like, for Star Wars. Are you going to be able to get your Riser solo out and, and, and hit some... I, hit st some, I still haven't seen Solo. Are you going to be able to hit the vaporizer in the cinema, though, as a patient? Like, is that going to be frowned upon? Like, are you going to have to go outside and use it with the smokers? Or, like these things need to be discussed and you, you don't really think about it like someone's hitting the bong now like <laughs> All you don't on the really bong. think about it unless you're a patient and it affects you and like the people making the decisions right now i don't think they've they've taken into the consideration half of the like the issues that our patients are going to face as this is outrolled um, you know that's a really good point actually because legitimately the first time we've had someone take a bong hit as we recording so that in itself red letter day uh, if you could not be the coffee guy that's down there, because that's oh, no, they, wreaking havoc with this. This guy's a professional. <laughs> but it's a good point, because we're now, we're in a club. Let's talk about this club that we're in right now. It's bloody amazing, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. just, it's just incredible. It's, it's a proper club in London. And when you walk in here, it's quite awe-inspiring to see this going on. And it's, I think, genuinely inspiring. I don't know if you think that, Melissa, that we've, we've now got a position of quasi-legitimacy through what people like Greg have been doing. Is there a way that we can roll this out further and actually get more traction? I don't know. Greg, do you want to take well, that one Bloody better. Otherwise yeah. it's been a waste of time, <laughs> isn't it? Like, um, you know, I've, you know get, having, having police crime commissioners come up to you and say, I like what you're doing. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind if a club like this opened up in my area. Uh, you know, multiple times that's happened to me now. Like, that's a you know, vote of confidence for me. I want to make sure this happens. I want to make sure that other people around the country have got the tools to try and make this happen in their area. Not everyone's got the right ingredients, sadly. So we literally have to go, right, where is the dam bursting? Let's go for it. Like, let's all get behind and force it and make it burst. And um, I think we're doing that, you know, in North Wales. Uh, we're, you know, we're doing that up in uh, up in Teesside. We're doing it down in Sussex. Um, like uh, like Wales. Like I think we've got we've got a, a you know a, a great group of people there right across the the whole of Wales. Like all getting behind it and sort of like how we can how can we look at this as a national issue, like not just r real small local ones, but. I, you know, it's for me. It's amazing to sort of like this was just an idea that uh, you know, a, a, you know, I had with a few other people, and all of a sudden, you know, not all of a sudden, seven years later, you know, there are you know 25 to 30 clubs around the country with full-time, well, you know, premises that they use. Their members know this is the spot that they you know come together and do their thing in, and. Um, the more and more press we get, the more and more people get in touch with us saying, oh, I want to start one in my area. And it's not just, like I say, on the business side, it's not just on the grassroots level now. People have got, got, you know, well, I've got enough money to set something up. Like, how do I go about it? Like, I want to do it properly. I've got a venue already. I need to speak to my police crime commissioner. What do they think about it? Sort of like, and it's all about going through those steps. And sometimes you hit brick walls and it's about trying to find a way around them. All right, who else in the community can we speak to to try and gain legitimacy for our cause? Does it have to be a police crime commissioner? Does it have to be a police chief? Does it have to be an MP? You know, there, there are other people. Local councillors are actually quite good advocates for it because they speak to the, the local people more than the MPs do and the police, you know, police crime commissioners do. do. They're, they're on the ground and uh, they know what the people want. So, like, it's about 
it's about getting on the hustle really like for real um it's it's not just going to come and land in your lap you've really really got to fight for it um the clubs that have got to this stage they have not just waltzed into it they've taken some risks they've put money in out of their own pockets they've um spent hours on it they've stressed over it they've you know uh they've given up certain things in their life you know that they love to be able to do this because they believe in it and um that's you know that's why we're at the stage that we're at now because people have you know pushed forward they know this yeah. is worth something but also the problem greg was you know when when you and hardiel the pcc for derbyshire went around some cannabis clubs and then appeared on victoria derbyshire you know, you had other people there like Alison Hernandez from Devon and Cornwall who came out with the usual schizophrenia, psychosis, you know, it'll make it easier for children to access cannabis. And basically, you know, in that, you know, that was a really good program. But then you tend, we tend to lose it then when those arguments come in because people just don't understand that the problems caused by cannabis is as a result of prohibition, not as a result of the plant, you know. I'd like to think that's where academics can come in as well, though, because they can provide the evidence base that actually the cannabis social club model could be a safer, feasible alternative to prohibition. Um, and people do listen to the evidence, or I do, you hope people listen to the evidence. Actually, policymakers historically haven't listened to the evidence, have they? Um, Sometimes <laughs> trying to get it deleted. No, yeah, no prime minister yeah. included. That as well, but I think in order for policy outcomes to be legitimate and to be effective, you have to uh, listen to the evidence. So that's where academics come in because they can bridge that gap between people who consume drugs and between the policymakers because they'll do the research with people who consume cannabis and other psychoactives and they'll do research about them. So they can really help bridge that gap, I think, and communicate the evidence to policymakers. Arfon, if, if there was a club in Wales operating like this, what would be the policy? What would happen? Would you have a duty to go and do something about it or would no. you be hands off? My, my advice is, is um, you know, you can't... Although us as PCCs actually support the principle of cannabis clubs, yeah? I couldn't, or Hardiel couldn't, or Ron Hogg couldn't just go out, Barry Coppinger in Cleveland couldn't go out and say, you can run a cannabis club in Middlesbrough or in Durham or something like that. What would happen was, if somebody made a complaint, the police would be obliged to do something about it because, at the end of the day, it's an offence under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Yeah? Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And this is what happens when premises are raided. is normally as a result of complaints made by whoever. Um, and So we, as PCCs, couldn't give anybody an exemption from, from prosecution. It's not just the way it works. Because really, the, the role of the Police and Crime Commissioner is not operational. The operational policing is down to the Chief Constable. Uh, and th this is what you see. You'll see some stuff on social media. I, I'm not going to mention any names. It says that I allow police officers to, to uh, prosecute people for minor possession of cannabis. As it turned out, that particular job was as a result of information, um, reliable information. That there, there was quite a big plantation uh, and, and everything and as it turned out there was very little there and, and that person got a caution as, as a consequence so it's not quite as it's uh, portrayed on social media most of you will have seen that particular story I think, uh, uh, I think social media and cannabis stories is quite a funny topic really because yeah, yeah. like, uh, we, we've noticed uh, uh, you know, a lot of police forces around the country they think it's a good idea to post up a picture of like we found this amount of weed or we busted this 
granny for this amount of cannabis and and they think they're going to get a big social media congratulations and they get slated like twitter takedowns some some facebook pages of like police pages have actually deleted their facebook page because they don't want the you know all the all the comments and the trolling and the abuse they get from trying to embarrass cannabis consumers like we are legion yeah, and really, while the police are doing that, yeah, there's other far more serious offences, you know, being committed. Whether it's my my priorities are basically domestic abuse, modern slavery, child sexual exploitation, and serious and organised crime. Yeah, um, and you know, I I look at these as you say these posts on social media, and I despair, and I think to myself, what more good could those police officers have been doing while they've been doing that job? And um, and I think we, we, we need to reprioritise where our resources should be used. And there's an awful lot of threat, risk and harm going on in society that our time and money will be better spent on dealing with than minor possession of not just cannabis, any drug. I'm going to come out and ask a few questions in a minute. So if you've got a question, have your hand ready in a minute. I'm going to ask Melissa one more question and come to you. But Melissa... What struck me when I was watching a video of you at Breaking Convention is that you asked the question that I always ask at podcasts, and that is reform going to come from the top down or the bottom up? Well, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Put you I on mean, the spot. yeah, what first got me into the model, the cannabis social club model, about was it about seven years ago we met, Greg? It was quite, yeah, quite a while ago. We, we met literally before I started the cannabis social clubs yes. at the Student for Sensible Drug Policy conference in 2011. Yeah, totally sparked my desire to give up my job and say. I need to do more. Yeah, that's that, right. Yeah. And I just found the club model fascinating because it actually comes from the bottom up. It comes from cannabis consumers themselves actively demanding change. Um, and very often drug policy um, regulatory models come from the top down. And it comes from policymakers that haven't re- um, decision making and uh, policies where they haven't really listened to the voice of the drug consumer. Um, and I do think that it... I think policy will come from a mixture of bottom-up and top-down forces, I think. So you can see that that happened in Uruguay. Um, So, yeah, so I think hopefully it will come from a a mixture of both. I think basically uh, policymakers do need to listen to consumers, to NGOs, to um, law enforcement bodies. There's a variety of stakeholders involved in this process. So I do think you need both. You need top-down and bottom-up. I I think, like, with with when it comes to uh, sort of, like changing the law like in america they have the like the the legal right to vote on uh, initiatives every two years so for the medical cannabis policies they voted and changed those every two years to get them right until they liked them and some states like pressed ahead with it other states sort of like had people in there that were really oppositional to it and they can even change county to county and like in some states they have like the vote in there so in some parts of California, like San Francisco, it raced ahead. In some of the sort of like northern counties, things got, you know, held behind. And they're some of the big cultivating counties. So Yeah, just to say about that, linked to that as well, I don't think we pay attention actually to how much drug policy reform from around the world came from the bottom up. So in the US, for instance, the reason why we had medical cannabis in California, which was the first state to legalize cannabis medicinally, was in large part due to a guy called Dennis Perrin. 
Um, and he started Proposition 215 in 96 to push through this medical cannabis bill. And he did that because his uh, boyfriend was dying of AIDS. So that's the reason as to why he pushed for reform. So uh, a lot of the time, change can come from the bottom up. It can come from these cannabis activists actively demanding change. And I think it's because of him, you know, and because of people like him, ordinary people, um, that cannabis was legal for medical reasons in other states. And then recreational cannabis soon followed. Um, yeah, and the same happened in Spain, I suppose, as well, and in Uruguay, and lots of countries around the world. Also, also uh, remember that the reason that, that, that cannabis has been uh, rescheduled for medicinal purposes um, in this country is as a result of a bottom-up campaign. If it hadn't been for Billy Caldwell and other children that they're suffering, embarrassed, um, you know, the ministers to such an extent that they were forced to do something. And I, I, I think that... Uh, once it all depends how well medicinal cannabis works, and and it'll all be you know the proof of the pudding will be in how how many people have actually prescribed um, cannabis, and you know with the Home Office we can all guess how good or how bad it's going to be. Um, but if, if we're going to get thousands of prescriptions, then I think it's only a matter of time then that you know we're on the way to regulating cannabis for recreational use but if there's only a small number that that gets um, uh, prescribed it then you know we need to keep at it and um, looking at I think one of the biggest blockers to um, to flexible drug policy on cannabis is the Royal College of Psychiatrists who keep on coming out with this rubbish around psychosis and children affected by cannabis and they just don't seem to be able to get that the reason for that is because of prohibition and because of the quality and, you know, the, the fact that nobody knows what they're taking, um, especially around um, synthetic cannabinoids. And I always question, you know, like sort of... I, I'd never heard an awful lot about head shops and, and legal highs until they passed the Psychoactive Substances Act. All of a sudden, we have a massive problem with synthetic cannabinoids. And I always ask myself... You know, why do countries who have got a flexible drugs policy not have problems with, um, with synthetic cannabinoids? You know, if we deregulated cannabis in this country 30 years ago, would we have a problem with mamba and spice today? And I think probably we wouldn't. And I, think, I, I don't think the Netherlands have, have a problem or a big problem with synthetic cannabinoids and because of their progressive drug policy over the years. Um, but... I, and I, I just don't get why these royal colleges, neurologists, psychiatrists, are so slow in understanding, you know, the issues. And I, I think, and I know the royal college of psychiatrists are revisiting um, their 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 policy on, on cannabis, and, and hopefully they they might come up with something progressive, because once the the royal colleges start understanding and coming on our side yet yeah, and I think that the 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 um, dominoes will really start falling then with with government hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We are getting quite a lot of movement from the Royal Colleges. Royal, uh, the, the, it's starting to come, but as you deal. said, there's just that one particular that's that's quite a stalwart on that on that one bit and this is where it gets quite frustrating doesn't it Greg because it is it's a lot of the harms that get trumpeted in the media people that know how to consume know how to mitigate these things and yet those voices still aren't quite listened to are they um I think we're literally on the like that moment where we're starting to be listened to like we're getting enough respect that we're being able to be in the same space as these people and we're having you know conversations can be had it's the the barriers fall down like you know quite quickly. It's like oh really? I didn't I didn't know that because no one has told you like and you haven't put yourself in a situation. A lot with the psychiatrist, you got to realise, and the same with the police, you only see the people in the worst situation. That's why they're seeing you. That's your job. Like you're there to sort of like intervene when you think there's a problem, and uh, or you're there to help someone when they've you know they've found out they've got a problem. Like in whatever area of life. Sort of like in cannabis social club, you, you really only really speak to the people that are, you know, are doing well with it. So like that's why people think that all oh, right, you're just biased because you you like it. It's like well, no, we see the good in it, and we see how you know we've see, see some people that have had bad experience with cannabis, and they you know they find out more about it, and they actually have a better relationship with it after that. And this you know they still involve with it, and you know. Dave here is actually someone who, who got in contact with us, you know, years ago. The cannabis social clubs had a lot of questions about, you know, cannabis use and, you know, how, you know, di- different different strains interact with you. And now he's like, you know, I would say like a really strong, you know, drug policy advocate. He's, you know, out there trying to help people like gain access to, you know, to better information around drugs and help shape better policy in this local environment. So, I think you know these 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 places do shape good you know good people. I I, um, I think that the the message the way we need to um, try and explain this is that if you're in Colorado and you were a, um, a licensed retailer of cannabis, there's no way that responsible licensed retailer would sell to a 12 year old. Yeah, if you're outside Bethnal Green um, tube station tonight, yeah, an organised criminal would have no qualms at all about selling cannabis or something stronger to a 12 year old child. And the reason that child, when he gets to 18 or 20, has got, um, you know, mental health issues is not because of the cam- cannabis, it's the age they started using the cannabis. A tw- 12-year-old child that starts drinking alcohol now is probably going to have some severe problems by the time he or she is 20. So there's no difference. And I, and I think it's those type of messages we need to get out there and it's going to change things, is to say, listen, you know, cannabis is not, you know... It's obviously harmful depending on the age, but you know if you treat it um, responsibly, get retailers to. Uh, and what I'm saying is, you can sell it in an off-license with age restrictions, the same as you do with alcohol. And um, we all know there's plenty of people who got problems with alcohol. And um, 
I think this is where the cannabis social club model is so important, though. Like, it's like one of the pieces of advice that you know Frank tells you, and like, and doctors tell you is like, don't go home and use, don't, don't, don't buy drugs and go home and use them on your own. Sort of like, the, you know, the the official advice used to be to yeah. don't go home and drink on your own. You know, drink drink with other people. It's safer. Like, because you you know you get more of a buzz off the social interaction rather than the actual drug you're imbibing in. And when you're around other people, sort of like you you're you'll check on your social embarrassments as well like you, you won't do things that you would know other people will find socially unacceptable when you're just doing it at home you can build bad habits and like not everyone does and it is you know it's a it is a small you know, minority of people but that's the truth and like if we're gonna legalize cannabis and just sell it through uh you know through shops and not give people a social right to use then I think that's almost the recipe for disaster. That's going to be when you walk into the problems that they're trying to portray that we that we're going to have anyway if we do legalise cannabis. And that that is exactly the same argument for the consumption rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if, if we need to take opioids or anything, or you know, you need to take it in a safe environment, especially if you've got problematic use and you don't know what you're taking. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I would agree. It's all about um, safety. Yeah, I do think more research needs to come in into um, how effective cannabis social clubs are in helping patients who use it, you know, for medical reasons. Because you said something to me, it was probably a year ago now, that like socialising is medicalising. You know, it's inherent in the in the name of like cannabis social clubs. So if you've got compounding health issues and you've got, say, a chronic illness, a lot of the time you might have uh, mental health issues as well. You know, you might be feeling lonely, isolated, yeah. depressed, all these things. So if you were to able to access a cannabis social social club with like-minded people that could help deal with those compounding health issues as well the worst thing for me when i got diagnosed was they handed me a bag after telling me hey you've got crohn's you can have this for the rest of your life here's your medicine go home and take it all right what what one does what (laughs) you know well read the leaflets and you know work it out for yourself kind of thing i had to learn about the dangers and the, the the effects of the side effects that i had and i pretty much just got the side effects and never really got the benefits of all the the 16 pharmaceuticals that I was on um, and like you know more and more people are learning about dabs now and cannabis oil and e- extracts and like I think it was on the, the uh, Hulk Hogan show last night what was it <laughs> Howard Hogan how uh, uh, um, uh, d- did a dispatches on cannabis and they looked at like shatter and distillate and concentrates and how they are you know they're about four times more uh, potent than uh, than the the strongest cannabis you'll find on the streets um and you know people are using that if they're using that for the first time do you want them to just be using that at home do you want them to have bought that on the streets and just go home and use that or would you like them to be around people in the cannabis social club who have done it before can tell you not to dab too hot because you'll cough your guts up like someone downstairs because their lungs are burning uh, or, or they're dabbed too much and start going whoa hang on a minute i haven't been this high before and that was really quick uh, you know, for an experienced uh, consumer, like those things aren't an issue. You're like, whoa, okay, I know how to ride this one out. You know, if you've just done that for your first time, you think, oh, this is interesting. Everyone else is doing it. I should do it. Then it's good to be around like people who know what they're doing rather than just seeing it on the internet and then just buying it. Or like one of the models that I've heard, like you know, in some parts of Canada, you can only order your cannabis online and it's delivered to you. Sort of like. What the hell? You've taken that tactile experience away from, you know, buying cannabis. So, like, even with street dealers, you can go, nah, thanks, mate, I don't like the look of that. Yeah. So, like, if something, if you've just paid, like, 
premium for something, it arrives through your door, you're not happy with it, like, what, have you got to send that back and wait a week for it, you know, to a refund? No, I want to get high now, dude. Like, like, and if you don't get reform right, then it can potentially bite you yeah. further down and the I line. Th- but so. I think a big fear for us in here in the UK, especially with, the, you know, some of the people who are involved in lobbying in the UK, is we'll end up with a fully corporate model where yeah. it won't be UK growers, it'll be licensed cannabis producers in Canada and America and other legal countries that I think there's about seven countries that are licensed now Australia Denmark they've got licenses Israel they'll go well don't worry about growing it yourselves we'll import it for you and don't worry you, about your licenses yeah. and then there's no British jobs all the people who've been growing cannabis and trying to shape the industry who have got us to this crest in the wave this tipping point they're going to be sacked off they're not going to make be able to make money out of it for the green economy in the UK and all that money that cannabis consumers use in the UK is going to be sent out abroad and we're, and we're screwed. Like, where is that money helping our police forces? I'm going to be hated for saying that, aren't I? Our hospitals, our schools. Uh, do you know what I mean? They're the things we want to see, like, the ca- cannabis being money being put in, into. And uh, there's a real fear that that money's just going to be taken out by corporate greed. What we want to see in the UK is something yeah, akin to, like, craft brewery, you know, yeah. Local brands, small producers, you know, employing local people to work in you know, it. You know, it's a community feeling. People feel like, a, a, you know, a trust with those kind of things. And we've actually had people from, like, uh, you know, the craft brewing industry get in touch with us and say, they, you know, they love what the UK CSE is doing. They love that it's not a corporate model that is looking out for, you know, British people's needs. And people see cannabis social clubs as a, this is for the people. This is not a massive corporate thing. Yes, there is a business side to this, but there's an ethical way of doing it. I think looking at looking at like the whole—I hate to say the word on this podcast. Go on, what? Skunk. Let's be a bomb. What's that? What's that? Super high grade sensi. The weed without the seed—that's what it is. Like, and it's just—it's just—it's medical grade cannabis, basically. Um, cider went through a, a, a similar kind of like uh, you know bad spell in the past. People thought you know people are drinking white lightning and just you know sleeping on park benches. It wasn't good. Cider got a bad rap. Really, it wasn't cider. It's just bad practices around that industry. And I think that's what we really need to you know look at with cannabis. It's like just having better practices. There are good people involved with it. Let's just cut out the bad people. Has anybody got a question? There must be someone that's got at least one. Right, you would, right at the back, wouldn't you? <laughs> if you could step forward and tentatively... Mr. Darren Rigby. Um, my question mainly is, is for yourself, often, and it is... Um, um, we've, we've, we can see that there's six um, PCCs that are currently on site, and uh, we, we see you as progressive people, really. Um, my question really is that uh, on Monday I get to see a magistrate for growing 13 plants and I don't really want to speak to the magistrate. I'd, re- I'd really like to speak to um, the, the judge in a Crown Court and, and the question really is um, that we've identified six progressive PCCs. Surely there must be a judge out there that's on side enough that we should be able to enact what has been written in law and that is the ability to repeal the Act because it is an unjust law on my head and... Um, all attempts to, to do what uh, is written in law, which is uh, due process, all attempts to enact due process are obfuscated. And it really perplexes me so much that it's just an old boys club that's keeping us away from cannabis. 
So the question is, do you know of a progressive judge that we can put someone in front I, of that we may be able to repeal the act? I, 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 I don't think any, you know, um, it's not down to judges to repeal the act. Yeah? That, that is down to parliament to, to produce um, progressive uh, legislation instead of this um, damaging misuse of Turks Act, which has been in force for 60 odd years now. Um, judges will, um, for going plans now, if you elect trial to Crown Court, it's probably going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, so I would prefer to have it dealt with the magistrates if it was me. Um, also, um, the, the guidance, the sentencing guidance on the possession of cannabis and the plants is, is, um, is you know, they, they, there's a wide variation depending on the number and, you know, the supply and everything else. So for, from the bottom end up to, you know, so it'll be a conditional discharge all the way through, really. But um, it most certainly be my advice to, to have it dealt with in, in magistrates' court because I don't think you're going to have any difference in attitude between magistrates and judges. They'll just follow the sentencing guidelines. Any, any judge, um, it doesn't matter what their sympathy towards cannabis use is, yeah, they will deal with you according to the sentencing guidelines because otherwise they're, they're, they're asking for a shed full of trouble. It's a bit like, like, like this high court judge that sentenced these um, three anti-frackers in Preston to 15 months imprisonment um, who were immediately released by the Court of Appeal and now he is um, sub subject to a judicial inquiry. And I would suggest if a judge found you not guilty of possession of cannabis, yeah, that they would probably face a judicial inquiry as well. Um, so their hands are very much tied to the sentencing guidelines, I'm afraid. And to the law, judges have to apply the law. So while the Misuse of Drugs Act is still in effect, they do have to apply the law. People can argue. Exactly yep. My point is that, you know, we have this thing called Repeal Act and, and the process goes, according to what I've learned, that the person must be found guilty of the law and then acquitted. And then the jury says to the, to, to the judge, um, this is a bad law upon this person. Please, can you have a word with the politicians about repealing this act? That's how the process should be. And it should be the person that's charged with the, the you know, uh, the committing the, the offence that enacts all of that. That should be the person that brings it to the fore, you know, mm. that, hey, this is a bad law upon mm -hmm. my head. Mel, Mel's actually like been been speaking about sort of like you know how do we bring a you know a case forward? Yeah, like I mean hypothetically, I think in terms of medical cannabis consumers, now that the government have made it Schedule Two and they are basically accepting now that it has medical value. Um, that's a very different position to the one that they have been in for decades where they've said it's got no Since medical value. Uh, distinction from quail is what they ask. They ask for a distinction yes, from so Regina I, versus quail to, to, to get, put medical grounds back into yeah. our remit. So I think hypothetically there could be a case now that they've put it into Schedule 2. And the reason why I think that is because... Um, if they're saying that you ought to have access to cannabis for medical reasons and they're recognising the medical value, then the government is under a legal obligation to provide an accessible and effective procedure to allow you to do that. And there are precedents so, uh, for, for that to be the case. So, for instance, um, there's a case in Ireland, uh, well, it was called A, B and C against Ireland to do with abortion law, right? So it, it, on the face of it, it doesn't seem to apply, but I do think it does apply to medical cannabis. And the reason why I think that is because one of the women wanted to have an abortion because it was um, a threat to her life to carry on with the pregnancy. So she ended up, her case went all the way to the European um, Court of Human Rights 
because the Irish Constitution allows for you to access an abortion if it is a threat to your life, um, but they didn't allow for an effective and accessible procedure to enable her to do that. So it was held that that breached her human rights, that breached her Article 8 rights, um, because the state has a positive obligation to provide that effective and accessible procedure. So now that we have legalised cannabis for medicinal use to a certain extent, you know, we are placing it in Schedule 2, it makes me wonder just how many patients can actually access it. Are we creating a, a real accessible, effective procedure? So can we use that case as grounds to potentially you know, put forward a human rights argument? And if people are being denied access to cannabis and their doctors are saying, well, I would prescribe it to you, but the funding authority, the local funding co- committee won't, mm. won't fun- fund it, sort of like, you know... Is it against their human rights to be able to access it when they know damn well, and they have been for the last 20 to 40 years, growing it for themselves? Like yes, People yeah. deserve the right to, right to grow if they, if they can and if they can't access it through the, the legal channels. Like Why should they be denied it on some red tape Yeah, definitely. Know, I mean, that's what happened with Sativex. Yeah, and yet the, you know, people who, can, who grow it at home, uh, a, a gram of cannabis oil can you know, be as little as sort of like 10 pounds, 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, if you put it in a dropper bottle, it's another pound. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's 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 that kind of markup. Yes, it's standardised. Yes, every time they produce it, it's the same. It's clean from mould. It's got the same level of THC and CBD in it. But a lot of patients find they can they can provide that kind of care for themselves. So if they can do that, why do they have to go down this cor- you know only corporate option? It's a it's a it's a big question that needs to be asked and. And also in the next year, you do wonder just how many patients are going to be able to access it. So although 80,000 doctors can now prescribe it, how many doctors are really going to feel comfortable prescribing it in the absence of NICE guidelines, in the absence of General Medical Council guidance? They're not. They'll probably be quite scared of doing that. Also purely on the anecdotes as well, because there's been susceptibility to believe in the anecdotes of as often addressed psychosis and things. It's probably not going to be, be within their risk factor to want to go that route, is yeah. it? So let's wrap this up then. We're going to have a, a wrap-up word from each one of you. I think we'll start with Greg and end on Arthur for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> um, so start with you, Greg. Where, where are we going? What can we expect? What do you think? I think we're in for a... Um, the battle has actually just begun now. Like, you think medical cannabis like has been won. It hasn't. The, the gate has been opened. It's about shaping the right policy now for patients um, and for for what they need, not what we think the public will accept or what the politicians find comfortable doing. Um, it needs to be right for the patients. Now, if, if, the, if the purpose of medical cannabis is to stop patients getting arrested or to stop patients suffering, and I think an L, uh, Liberal Democrat MP actually put this forward in... Uh, 1994, which is why GW got their license. You know, they've still been suffering from now then till now. That's that's 24 years. That's way too long. And uh, so it's you know shaping medical cannabis policy is a long process. We've got that to draw from example. I think it's going to speed up a hell of a lot now. Obviously, we've seen the Home Office trying to rush it through. So David has really sort of like you know played a good part in that. Um, but on a on a on a social and a local level it's going to take more people to be heroes really to come forward uh, stand their ground speak up be loud let people know what your intentions are and work with people that want to want to do it like it's not just going to happen for you it's not going to land in your lap 
Um, this is, you know, this is a call to action. If I'm being honest, if you're listening to this, if you think you've got the, you know, what it takes to bring people together, and you want to do something that goes against the grain of like sitting here and waiting for someone else to do it on a corporate level, so you can go in and buy a cannabis in. 10 grams of packaging when it only you got one gram of weed then this is what's happening in Canada at the moment then then just sit down and wait for it but if you want something sooner and you want something more real that's more tangible and like fits in with what we've got going on here in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland like, don't forget like Northern Ireland and Ireland got some great little clubs setting up as well um, uh, you know like so, you know support this uh, support this model get out there and you know ask your people around you that you know use cannabis if they're behind this as well and just start the conversation let them know this isn't uh, like uh, you know I think one of the sayings we've got is if you know you know like that's a bit of a joke because it's like hey let's tell everyone like it's like this is the future of it like if we don't do something about it now someone else is going to do something we don't like let's have a round of applause for Greg I think on that And then, Melissa, if I was to, to force you to make a prediction, where do you think we'll be in five years' time? In five years' time, I think we will have uh, medical cannabis, and I think it will I think it will come through the pharmaceutical model, if I'm honest. I do think uh, that will happen. I think it's going to take much longer for the Conservatives, if they are still in power, to, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> to get behind home-growing. But I do think if we are looking at other countries like Canada, like the US... Um, they might start to pay attention to that and allow other kind of regulatory initiatives and stuff to come in. I think there's a lot of um, corporate, uh, there's a lot of uh, commercial interest, corporate interest in uh, seeing how we can legalise and regulate it over here as well. Um, whether that happens or not, I'm not sure. I think there definitely will be a place for the medical um, for medical cannabis it, it, without a doubt in the next five years and very often what other countries have shown us is that once the medical comes in the recreational follows very true can we have a round of applause for Melissa on that <laughs> and then Arfon just because you're the PCC and I think everybody takes their hat off to you to being in this cannabis club tonight <laughs> advocating for this issue what do you th- where do you think we're going? What do you expect? Uh, I, I, you know, with, with Canada, um, you know, regulating cannabis, I think the dominoes are beginning to fall. You know, I think it's only a matter of time. You know, um, Canada is G7, G9 nation. You know, people sit up. Um, one of the things that needs to happen now, and it could do with coming from Canada, yeah, is to look at... at um, I don't know how to do it, but binning the UN Convention on Narcotics has been in place since 1961, yeah? And it's the one main thing that stops countries regulating. Um, obviously, Uruguay have ignored it, Canada's rego- ignored it. I, I suspect that probably Portugal, you know, um, is looking at going down this way. Um, and um, we need to keep the pressure up. Uh, we have got members of parliament. We've got assembly members. We've got with Jeff Smith, Crispin Blunt. Um, but as as Melissa says, um, when the corporate companies from Colorado and the states start coming here and putting pressure on whichever government, yeah, then I, um, it's then because at the end of the day, we might sit here and talk about this, yeah, but. Um, is the corporate? Is the big corporate that's got the influence with with government, irrespective of what country you're in? Uh, I think it's realistic to to recognise that, and um, it's pressure for them that's going to change the mind of a conservative government. 
Let's have a round of applause for Arthon. And thank you so much for persevering with the sound issues. If we do this again, because this is a pilot, we might do it again. We'll talk with the club. We'll hopefully have a PA set up in place. If not, we'll just blame Nicky again and chuck, <laughs> chuck him over the Jason, side. We, we've, got, we've got people in the, in the festival movement here. We need a silent disco set up. We've yes. all got headphones. <laughs> you know, That's what we need to do now, a silent disco to cap the night off. Totally. Let's do it. So thank you so much for coming, everybody. Please give yourselves a round of applause as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much especially to the Cannabis Club that hosted us. Goodness knows you put up with us and I really, really do appreciate it. I'm keeping my fingers crossed and I don't want to be too cheeky but I'd love to go back and do some more podcasts there because it was just such a brilliant building, it really is. And one on one thank yous, thank you so much to Tristan and Nikki, the producer of this show, without them would be nothing. Thank you to My Name Is Ad for making us pretty with all the artwork you do. Thank you to John, who is the UK Leap social media guy, he does uh, at UK Leap on Twitter. Uh, also, you can find us on at UK Leap on Instagram, UKLeap.org on Facebook, and our website, UKLeap.org as well. And of course, John Harris, thank you so much to the Distraction Pieces Network social media guy, who's John Harris. Listen to The Dream Factory. It's hilarious. I love it. It's genuinely my favourite podcast. And I think that's it. Of course, listen to all the uh, people on the um, Distraction Pieces Network. Listen to Brett Goldsteins, who has done an amazing job with films to be buried with. It is an incredible podcast, and I'm jealous that he's got so big so quick. Thank you so much to Susie Gay, so why the drugs. Thank you to uh, Choose Night Jaw, Jim Smallman. And of course, listen to Scooby's Pip, hardcore listening with Christian Stew, and off the beaten track with uh, Stew. Right, we're a big network actually, aren't we? Thinking about it, that's a lot. That's a lot of free podcasts as well. So yeah, make sure you support all them if you can. And of course, stop and search because uh, yeah, we're trying to change the world here. Right, on that note, an online ramble. We've got some brilliant ones coming up. Uh, we've got the British Medical Journal joined us. Yeah, yeah. What can you say? That's that's an incredible one. It's so right, right. So on that note, I'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.